Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Thank you, Noel, and thank you, Jonathan, for that prayer. I'm also Jonathan. Uh, it's uh, my privilege to serve uh, as part of the pastoral team here at WDBC. It's a great pleasure to be able to open the scriptures with you this morning. I invite you to turn to Luke's gospel, the very last portion, uh, verses 50 to 53. You may have heard the phrase, uh, prisoner of the moment. Have you heard of that phrase, be a prisoner of the moment? Uh, the idea is that you are finding yourself in such a demanding or trying space, or it could perhaps be a really exciting space that you lose track of what's gone behind and what's coming in front of you. The danger, and why it's rightly called being a prisoner of the moment, is because you miss the grand story. And so the goal today is that we come to this passage and not simply think, where am I today? But we step back and we see the big picture. Somebody encouraged me recently. They said, you know, uh, sometimes you need to get off the dance floor and you need to walk up to the balcony and you need to see the view from the balcony. This is a balcony sermon today with the goal that you understand what's going on on God's dance floor that you would learn his steps, that you would see the joy that is yours and mine in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're also going to sort of tie together some threads as we bring this series to a close. On the way of the king, we're going to recap. Uh, there was three parts to this series. It started a long time ago, and uh, the three parts were the way of salvation, the way of discipleship, and the way of the king. And... Each of those sections mirrored sort of large portions of Luke's gospel. And to tie them together, Pastor Chris did a helpful uh, rendition of this around Easter time. Uh, you might want to think of it this way. The way of salvation is the way of discipleship to or unto the way of King Jesus. And that's the gospel. And you could even just sort of take those, those gold phrases there, salvation is discipleship to King Jesus. But it's a way. It is a way. And this is the good news for us. If Jesus is the way, the question we all must ask is, are we on the way? Are we on the way? To which you might be saying, well, how can I tell? <laughs> how can I tell if I'm on the way? Usually if you're on the way, you, you sort of see progress markers, you know, you start a trip, you, you know, maybe you look down into your cup and your coffee's half drunk. You say, well, I'm on the way, but I'm not there yet, right? Because I'll have this thing finished by the time I get to church. Or maybe you, you, you look at the fuel tank and you say, okay, well, you know, we, we're, we're marking some progress. You might look at signs on the road. One of the most challenging experiences for me, for it took me a long time to get over this, was when we arrived back in Australia, we were living in Burke at the time, and, you know, you arrive 
drive in Sydney, oh, isn't this fun? Isn't this interesting? Isn't this different? You go through the mountains, oh, this is lovely. Over the mountains, you know, down through Lithgow, on into, you know, Bathurst, Orange, you know, Wellington. And you're like, oh, rolling hills, this is beautiful. And then about a half hour outside of Dubbo, you, you, you go through Narromine, and then you hit the long road. And you're only halfway there. And on the long road, it's straight. The horizon doesn't move. They actually had to physically put bends in the road for towns, I'm convinced of it. I think you can count on one hand the number of, of times you have to move the steering wheel uh, between Narrow Mine and Burke. Some of you are nodding, you've been there. Uh, and and, and the, the temptation is to nod off, to fall asleep. Do you just, am I there? Am I there? How can we tell if we're on the way? <clears throat> As we look at uh, Jesus' ascension today, uh, we're reminded that last week he appeared to his disciples so that they would know that he lives. That's what he's been doing on Easter Sunday. And we talked about how the fact that faith is, is not wonder, right? Just like, just like traveling is not simply sitting in a car. Faith is not just wonder. Faith is, is understanding, illuminated by the Word of God, excuse me, illuminated with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, so that it translates into motion, it translates into action. And then Jesus suddenly disappears. <laughs> Luke 24, verse 50 to 53. So, how can I tell I'm on the way? The big idea today is that the way, the way of salvation is marked by joy. It's marked by joy. I wonder how many of you are experiencing the joy of the Lord. The goal here is not to be sort of heavy-handed and saying, you know, you should be more happy, all right? Everybody needs to sort of smile more and, you know, look on the bright side of life. That, that, that's not what this is all about. From the text, it's very clear that the disciples' experience after they had come to trust in Christ was marked by this profound joy, whereas before it was filled with doubt and confusion, here, this time, Jesus leaves, and they're celebrating. They're joyous. The way is marked by joy. I wonder how you would fill in that statement if somebody asked you, hey, you know, I heard you've been a Christian for a while. Tell me, what, what's, what's sort of, what, what's it about? You know, would you say, well, you know, being a Christian, it's about being a good person. It's about having good morals and good standards. You might put a religious twist on that. You might say, you know, being a Christian is about holiness and, and, and it's, about, it's about having this righteousness before God. Oh, it was maybe true and it may be important, but, but how can you tell? How can you tell? We'll see today that the way is marked by joy. Now, the nature of joy, uh, we've been sort of ruminating on this this week. Joy, it's a free person's emotion. It's, it, it's, it's, it's an emotion that is not strapped down with burdens and, and loss and striving and worry and fear. I mean, all those things, when you, when, you, when you know you're in a joyous state, those things have just been sort of unbuckled and, and sort of, they've fallen off, right? 
Joy is a free person's emotion. It's also an internal response. Joy isn't one of those things that you can sit around and if you think long enough, you, you, you can just sort of conjure it up. You, you can muster up joy. You might be able to muster up determination. You might be able to muster up concentration or focus. You can't, you can't muster up joy. It's, it's an internal response. And in that way, it's a reflective experience. Joy is it's, it's a reaction that comes from the thing that you're seeing or the thing that you're beholding. And so it's not surprising that joy is then an uncommon experience in our world because there's a lot of things in our world that aren't pretty to look at, aren't pretty to behold. As we'll see later, joy is actually a byproduct of worship. So the big question we're going to try to answer as we go through this is that how does Jesus bring us joy? Because my sense is that somewhere along the line, you experienced the joy of the Lord. That's why you're here this morning. You had a taste of the joy of the Lord. You had a taste of that liberty, that freedom, that, that, that taste of, of the burdens being removed. And that's why you're here today. You might not feel like being here today. You might not feel like listening to a sermon. You might have your head full of sort of other thoughts. You might just be fatigued and you really want a nap. If you need a nap, I'm not going to judge you. Go ahead. You can nap. You can watch it later. Right? But how does Jesus bring us joy? That's what we're looking at today. So the big idea is that the way is marked by joy. We're trying to answer the question, how does Jesus bring us joy? And so the end of Luke's gospel here in our outline, we, say that we see three ways that Jesus brings joy to us, his disciples. Three ways Jesus brings joy to us, his disciples. Jesus brings joy by speaking God's blessing over us. He brings us joy by ascending to God's throne for us. And he brings us joy by pouring God's glory upon us. The prepositions are important. They're also underlined, if you don't know what a preposition is. <laughs> Jesus brings us joy in these ways. Would you pray with me as we uh, enter into this time together? Father, will you help us to understand from the scriptures all that is going on here in this, as Luke's gospel comes to a close. Father, we pray that you would unleash for us just more of your glory that we would see, that we'd understand, that we would know, and we would be free. We trust that your spirit, who is all-powerful, will accomplish your purposes in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in terms of overview, this is Luke's conclusion to the gospel, and he's going to sort of pull three threads together. He's going to entwine these three strands, and it's around these ideas of completion, bringing something to a close, these, this idea of celebration, that's the second strand, and the third strand is, is anticipation. And in this way, it's a really strange conclusion, isn't it? You usually don't think of, of, of something being completed as the same time that something is anticipated or something that is celebrated. And so I'm going to give you a visual here. And, and what I want to try to explain is that like concentric circles sort of growing outward, the ascension of Jesus is both a fulfillment, a fulfillment and an extension of God's promise now through his disciples. Now, if that's all confusing for you, the main thing is there. The proof that these disciples have moved past wonder and into faith is found in their joy. That's how we know something's different. 
When Jesus last departed, they were afraid. When he appeared, they were confused. But now they believe, they worship, and they have joy. So, here's my little visual, if you're a visual person. So, we have three concentric circles. The first is how Luke in this gospel brings together the idea of completion. Jesus fulfills God's plans and his purposes. And as the one who fulfilled God's plan from all time, you'll see this, he is now able to pronounce God's blessing. And this blessing is met with a celebration, a celebration at the reality that God is now enthroned as king. But this celebration doesn't just stop as, as a, hey, that was a great thing. We're so glad, Jesus. We're so happy. It continues with a sense of anticipation. And these might be different aspects of the Christian life that you've sort of encountered. Maybe you're someone who just likes to sit in this idea of completion. And you're just, you just ruminate all the time about the idea of fact that Jesus fulfilled God's plan and purposes. Maybe you're someone who's, who's moved into celebration and for you life is just characterized by joy. But it's not simply that. There is this anticipation of what is to come. Now notice the advancing, the growing of God's kingdom through this. So here we are, back to our overview. Uh, just to sort of frame this conversation, I think James Edwards has a couple helpful things to say. You might ask the question, well, Jesus ascended, where did he go? Which way did he go? Where did he go? <laughs> Edwards makes this point. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead with a glorified body that superseded the physical properties governing mortal bodies, then it would appear inappropriate for him to remain permanently subject to those physical properties on earth. His translation, i.e. his going up to heaven, his translation to his essential celestial state follows both naturally and inevitably. What he's saying there is he's saying Jesus is now resurrected and glorified. He's not going to be bound or confined to this earthly existence. It's perfectly logical that he would ascend to the state of glory. He goes on to say, Jesus did not discard his body and return to the Father. In contrast to the incarnation in which he departed from the Father as a spiritual being to take on flesh. He's saying Jesus didn't leave the body that he rose with somewhere on earth. He ascended bodily to heaven. Now why? Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Jesus' identification and embracing of humanity are so complete that he returns to the Father as the incarnate Son. Jesus, he's not simply the Savior of humanity, but in his bodily ascension, he exalts humanity with himself. We are so used to putting down our state as image bearers of God that we miss the fact that it was God's intention that those who bear his image might dwell with him in glory. And Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one. So as he bodily ascends into heaven, he is, he's literally pioneered the path for humanity to dwell in glory with God. And so we can rightly say that humanity is now present in the Godhead through Jesus, the incarnate Son. 
as the Lord Jesus now is, believers someday will be. As, Paul, as John would write, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. All right. This is balcony stuff. This is balcony stuff. Don't worry, we'll get down on the dance floor in a minute. All right. Remember, at the very beginning of this book, Luke said he was writing an orderly account of what had been fulfilled in his days. Here's what an online dictionary, I forget which one I used, <laughs> defines as fulfillment. The meeting of a requirement, a condition, or a need. That's what it means to fulfill something. Well, in this case, the need of humanity has been for redemption. Since we fell, since we falled, since we sinned, Humanity needs to be redeemed. Now, the condition for that redemption was atonement. Something had to be done with our sin. Sin leaves this stain on us that we can't just wipe off. It has to be covered. And the requirement for atonement was the death of a perfect substitute on our behalf. So when Luke's saying that something's been fulfilled in his days, he's saying that God had promised to redeem us, but who could do it and how could it be done? Which leads us to the themes of this section. This is so rich, and it's no mistake that it comes on the back of Jesus saying that everything written in the scriptures, everything written in the scriptures points to me. You recall back in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's talking with two figures. The disciples saw him talking with Moses and they saw him talking with Elijah in a glorified state. This is significant. Jesus said, or Luke records, that Jesus was talking with them about his exodus before he was to be taken up. So, all you old you Sunday school kids, this is time to dust off your sword drill. Here we go. Who led the Exodus? Moses. Moses led the Exodus. Who was taken up into heaven? Jesus. No, before Jesus. Elijah. Yeah, there's some speculation about Moses. Elijah. Elijah's the one who was taken up into heaven. So here we have Jesus in verse 50. He's going to lead his disciples out, Exodus language, and he's taken up into heaven. But there's more going on here. There's also an illusion when Jesus raises his hands and blesses his people. This is exactly what happens when Aaron begins his priestly office in Leviticus chapter 9. And of course, Jesus himself has been telling them that all of this is about him ascending to God's throne, which David records in Psalm 110. And so we can conclude that the angels were right. When the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field early in this gospel, and they said, we bring you good news. There's tidings of great joy for all people. All of these strands of God's plan are coming together. It means that Jesus has completed the true exodus. His priestly office has begun. His kingship is established. And as he's taken up, the hint here is that his prophetic ministry is going to continue. Now, because this story is less familiar, I'm going to take just 30 seconds on it. Do you recall who was watching when Elijah was taken up into heaven on a chariot? Elisha. That's right. 
the one that he had been mentoring, the one he'd been discipling. And Elisha had said to Elijah, he said, I don't want you to go. But if you're going to go, he said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Give me, give me what you had from God, but give it to me even more. And Elijah said, well, I can't promise that. That's not mine to give. But what I can tell you is, if you see me being taken up, if you see me being taken up, then you will know that you have it. Then you will know that the spirit that was in me has been poured out to you. And so this sense that all these strands are coming together in scriptures. So here we come to verse 50. When he left them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. We have first here this idea of completion. Disciples have joy because Jesus speaks God's blessing over them. In Luke 24, verse 50, Jesus leads his disciples out of Jerusalem, lifts up his hands, and pronounces a blessing. This is Jesus functioning in a priestly way. This is what the priest did. I want you to note this scripture from Leviticus chapter 9. Aaron is beginning his ministry. They've just set up the tent of meeting. They just set up the tabernacle. And Aaron, for the first time, has made an offering of atonement. He made an offering for himself. He also had to make an offering for the people. And this is how that whole process ends. Verse 22, we read, Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burn offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Now, if you read Leviticus 9, Aaron's in there, he's handling goats, he's, hand, sorry, he's handling lambs, he's handling internal organs. So I want you to imagine someone who's been handling all these things, they lift their hands. What do you see on his hands? Blood. Jesus, as he lifts his hands to bless the people, what did the disciples see when he lifted his hands? They saw the nail marks, didn't they? So Aaron comes out and he lifts his hands and he blesses the people and then he steps down. Look what happens next. Then Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting. What was in the tent of meeting? That's where God's presence was. So the high priest then goes into the presence of God. And then when they come out, they bless the people again. And the glory of the Lord appears to all the people. And how does the glory appear? It appears as fire. Fire comes out from the altar. No, from the presence of the Lord. And notice what's burnt up. The sacrifice is burned up. The offering is burned up. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy. They shouted for joy and fell face down, which is a posture of worship. One commentator on Leviticus notes, this is the first time in the Old Testament that the word joy is used to describe the response of human beings. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because from the time Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, expelled from the presence of God, no one's been able to get this close to God. And here's the people of Israel. 
And they're there outside the tent of meeting and their sin has been covered. And the high priest is blessing them. He's mediating the favor of God to them. And the glory is therefore unleashed from the presence of God and the people respond with joy. And so we come back to Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Jesus leads them out. He raises his hands and he blesses the people. And they have joy. Brothers and sisters, there is no substitute for the blessing of God. So much so that your entire fate hinges on whether you know the blessing of God or not, whether you have the blessing of God or not. That is one way to describe the two paths before us. And so Jesus, having died on the cross, having, having shed his blood, having fulfilled God's promise, having offered himself as a sacrifice, here we see him beginning his high priestly ministry. The high priest's job was to represent the people to God and God to the people. And here's Jesus as he's about to leave his disciples and he's saying, the blessing of God is on you. The favor of God be upon you. And I think the reason this ties so closely to Leviticus chapter 9 is because what happens next in Luke's account. After a bit of a summary in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 2, what happens? Glory comes out from the presence of the Lord, doesn't it? And how does the glory appear? Fire. And if in Leviticus 9, the glory that appeared from the Lord's presence appeared as fire and consumed the offering and the sacrifices, where does the fire fall in Acts 2? It falls on the people. And so it's little wonder that Paul would say, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You see, one way to view your life as a Christian is that you, you are being consumed by the glory of the Lord. That the Spirit of God is, is taking over as you bring yourself to him. And the response of this is joy and worship of God. But we have joy because we know the blessing of God. Can I tell you the blessing of God is so much better than, than the buzz you get from a promotion or the buzz you get from somebody saying, hey, good job, or the buzz you get from watching your bank account go higher and higher, or, or buying a home, or taking a holiday. Like, the blessing of God is so much better than all these things. Because when you know the blessing of God, it says that God fights for you. It says that God is your shield and your defender. People who know the blessing of God are like Abraham who was promised to be the father of a multitude of many nations. And Abraham would go to God and he'd say, God, but I don't know how you're going to do it because I don't, have a, I don't even have a kid. My hired staff is the closest person. He's, the, he's, he's my closest representative. And God said, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. That's what it is to know the blessing of God. 
And that's why the disciples have joy. Verse 51, while he was blessing them, he left them or he, he separated from them and he was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Here the celebration begins and because the coronation is now being followed by the ascension of Jesus, it's not just physically ascending vertical, it's ascending to the throne of God. In Leviticus 9, when Aaron had made the sacrifice, he stepped down. He sat down. You say, well, Jesus went up. Well, yes, but he went up to sit down. He went up to sit down at the right hand of God. As Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make the enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus' ascension is to God's throne for us. He inhabits that space, and so we celebrate. He is in the presence of God. He is the conquering king. There is no power outside of him. There is no, there is no one who will thwart his plans or his purposes. You belong to Christ. You're on the winning team. And it's hard because right now, you can get tricked into thinking you're losing. But you just have to remember, what's the view from the balcony? The view from the balcony is that the throne isn't here right now. The throne has never been in an earthly kingdom. It's never been at the White House. It's never been at Parliament House. It's never been wherever the queen has her or king has his throne. I don't know where that is. It's never been simply in a physical space on earth. The throne has always been, the true throne has always been in the presence of God. The creator, because there is no one like him. There is no one who can match him in power and goodness and peace and love. There is no one who can match him in holiness. And so the throne was always going to be in the presence of God. And now that Jesus, this Jesus, who is your priest, has ascended to sit down at that throne, is cause for celebration. He is our master, he is our king. Oh, we get it twisted so many times, don't we? We try to captain our ship. We think, here I am in my own little vessel. Here I am. I got my outboard motor, my dinghy, you know, and, and here I am. And I'm going to sort of, I'm going to ford the, ford the stream, ford the canal. I'm going I'm to go all the way. And we sort of set sail. And the waves are coming and they're crashing and, and we're getting tired because we're rowing and, and the, wind's, the wind's against us and we're watching other people who aren't even bothered trying to cross. They're back on the beach having a good time. And you sit there and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing. You don't realize the only way you make it across is because you're attached to the tugboat. Right? He's going to bring you there. He's going to take you across. He's going to get you to the other side. He's going to get you into glory. Why? Because he's the captain, he's the king, and he is seated because he's in perfect control. Nothing is happening outside of his plan and his purpose. And so they can have joy because the baddies have all lost. Your enemy has been defeated. Death. Sin, destruction. And finally, cell, uh, verse 53, they stayed continually at the temple praising God. 
Here there's this sense of anticipation. Jesus pours out God's glory upon us. Now I'm looking a bit forward here. But the sense of anticipation there is in verse 53. They're listening now to what Jesus said and they're waiting. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. That power is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God manifests the glory of God. And so as believers, we share in that glory. And that's what's going to come in Acts chapter 2. Keep reading the story. And so as they, even as they celebrate, they anticipate. Brothers and sisters, do you live your life with a sense of anticipation? A sense of anticipation of what God's going to do? Do you have, do, do, do you get excited thinking about the glory of God being poured over your life? The, the presence of God indwelling you? Does that spark your hope? Does that kindle something? Does that kindle some sort of excitement? You see, joy is not just about the past. It's about the future as well. You can't have joy if you think all the good days are behind me and all the days in front of me are bad. You won't have joy. It has to be this all-encompassing, this sense of putting to rest of all the striving this sense of completion, this sense of knowing that God has it in hand, but also a sense that the future is good. That what's ahead is better than what's behind. This is how Jesus brings joy to his disciples. He speaks God's blessing over us. He ascends God's throne for us. And he pours God's glory upon us. I just want to say to you, as I say to myself, as I I remind myself of the words of Paul to the church in Galatia, having begun in the spirit, will we finish in the flesh? This great work that God's doing in you and in your life, his purposes, his transforming work in your life, that began through the spirit of God, through you interacting with the spirit of God. You're not going to finish. You're not going to see that come to fruition by saying, God, I think I got it. I've done a few Bible studies. I think I got it. I've heard a lot of Jonathan's sermons. I got it. You're not going to. No. You and I, we need to receive. We need to behold The glory of God manifested over us, in us, through the Spirit of God. Now, the nature of joy, we said this before. I want to talk briefly about habits of joyful disciples. These are some habits of joyful disciples. Joyful disciples abandon the pursuit of happiness. You know, when Jesus appeared to to Peter before he restored him, Peter's in the fishing boat. And there's this sense in that account that Peter's kind of gone back to his business. He's gone back to what was, you know, his plying his trade. But here they're in Jerusalem and they're in the temple. And you might look at that from a worldly perspective and say, what a waste of time. You know, you might say, hey, 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 disciples, broaden your interests. 
You know? Get a bit of culture. Get, 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 get a bit more balance in your life. You know, all this time at the temple. No, you get the sense here that they've stopped pursuing their own personal agenda for happiness because they've found contentment in the Lord. They cease the quest for significance. Some of you, you're not chasing happiness, you're chasing significance. You're chasing, you're chasing worth, you're chasing meaning. And joyful disciples, they remember the balcony view and they know that all the meaning they ever needed was shown when Jesus climbed up the cross and offered himself for them. Joyful disciples are generous towards God and others because they're not constantly trying to hoard things for themselves. They give time to God. They give their resources to God. They, they enjoy pouring themselves out for God and for others. We already touched on this. Joyful disciples wait expectantly for the Lord to act. And they seek the glory of the Lord. So how can you tell you're on the way? How can you tell you're on the way? I want to suggest to you, you can tell you're on the way when you can rejoice in the Lord. Now what I'm not saying is that joy and suffering are mutually exclusive. No. Sometimes they live together. And if you really want to stretch yourself, listen to Paul when he says, I rejoice in the sufferings that I have. So we're not given some Pollyannish view that knowing Jesus suddenly makes life easy, but it does make it joyful. It does make it joyful. And how could it not be? Honestly, how could it not be? I'm looking across this room at people who have been individually crafted and created by the same God who put everything at work in this world. And I'm looking across this room at people who though they rebelled against God and though they were enemies of him, people whom God chose to give his life for, God chose to win back, chose to suffer for. I'm looking at people that God has said, I'm going to pour my glory out. And when I pour my glory out, you will be a blessing. That you will walk and do greater things. You will bestow gifts that the world would look at you and will give glory to him because they see that what you've done has been done in his name. Brothers and sisters, what else are you waiting for? This is not the time. This is not the time to, like at some point you got to get off the fence. At some point you got to stop weighing your options. At some point you got to stop hedging your bet with Jesus and you just got to decide, am I going to crawl up on the altar? In view of God's mercy, am I going to offer myself as a living sacrifice?
It might look like a waste to the world, <laughs> but it's not. There is nothing like being aflame with the glory of God. The way is marked by joy, brothers and sisters. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I, I, I want you to be thinking, what's getting in the way of my joy? What's the obstacle there? Is it too big for my Lord to handle? Is it a worry? Is it a concern? Is it a loss? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Because I'm telling you, there is nothing, there is no, no thing from which Christ cannot set you free. And when you're free, you find joy. Let's stand and sing together.